Welcome to Interlinked, a podcast initiative of the Center for New Economic Studies at OP Jindal Global University. Interlinked aims to break down conversations in the social, economic, political, and institutional spaces by looking at the arising, unanswered, and even the ambiguously answered questions from an intersectional lens. I am Tanya Rana, a research assistant at the Center and a graduate student of public policy. A conversation today is with Ayla Bandagi on the theme of gender-sensitive urban transport systems. Our guest, Ayla, is an urban researcher and activist. Her work focuses on gender and cities in India. Presently, she is a PhD scholar at the Department of Geography, University of Nevada. Her work attempts to understand what a gender-responsive city in the Global South looks like. Ayla is also an Indian, India Urban Fellow from the Indian Institute for Human Settlements, Bangalore, and a Writing Urban India Fellow from the Center for Policy Research, Delhi. She holds a master's degree in development studies from Tata Institute of Social Sciences, Hyderabad. Previously, she worked as a fact checker with Factly and as a research associate for inclusive development at the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. Welcome to our podcast, Ayla. We are grateful to have you here today and look forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to it as well. Okay, so. Can you begin by telling our audience what motivated you to look at urban development as an issue area in your PhD research and how urban transport systems are really a gendered issue? And while while describing this, can you also briefly touch upon the field of feminist geography and what it is all about? Definitely. Um, so I think like a lot of people in India, the 2012 gang rape and murder in Delhi really hit home. Um, I I was very scared um, in that moment that I could I could have been that girl. Anybody, any of my girlfriends could have been that girl. And uh, somehow in my mind, then itself, I decided that this is the topic that I wanted to be working on for the rest of my life. Um, but a lot of well-meaning academic scholars had, you know, advised me that once you become the gender wali aurat, nobody listens to you. So you stick to something that is not gender so that you can bring out the gender questions. And I think like as a strategy, that was a very good advice and I did follow it uh, for a long time. But then it just became more and more difficult for me to reconcile what I was doing when I wanted to be working on this. So eventually I said, you know what, this is what I want to do. If nobody wants to listen to me, I will figure out a way to get them to listen. And I started working on this. Um, I worked in the development sector for quite a while. Um, I tried to, you know, look at project or planning solutions to women's problems in urban areas, but somehow I felt that there just isn't information, enough information for us to be working with. And so I decided this was a good time for me with like a hundred questions in my head to go into a PhD program to try and sort all of these questions out to try and figure out answers to some of these questions. And this is where uh, feminist geography as a field came into my life. Uh, I'm quoting Dr. Leslie Kern here when I say, feminist geography is simply about looking at the spaces around us, our human-made environment, our natural environments, and seeing the ways in which they have been shaped by ideas of gender and power relations. It can be something as simple as looking at how people are walking on a footpath, how a multi-storied building makes 
a place more unsafe than a two-storied building. Um, and I'm hoping that I will be able to explore this field uh, in depth in the future. Hmm, that's, that's really interesting. And I'm glad that you uh, stuck to your um, path and decided to pursue a PhD in this area. So let's come to one part of the issue, um, which is how are the mobility needs of men and women different? And how does it impact their everyday ability to engage in the productive or paid sphere of work? Sure. Um, so this is going to be a data-filled answer, probably. But the first thing that I would say differentiate women's mobility from men's mobility is that 84% of women's work trips are by walking, cycling, and public transportation. And I'm talking about work trips here because, unfortunately, our census only collects data about travel outside the house for more than 500 meters for productive employment. So by default, we do not actually have any quantitative data on leisure trips, on healthcare trips, or even on trips that are for domestic work itself. So despite that, 84% of women's trips are by walking, cycling, and public transportation. Um, Women travel during off-peak hours because they are essentially responsible for the domestic work in the house. So what happens is women usually travel after the men have left for their jobs in the morning and they essentially need to come back before the kids come back from school. So this is when public transportation frequency is actually quite low. If you have tra traveled during this time, you know that there just aren't enough buses. So you end up waiting longer and you end up like, because you're already walking or using public transportation, you are, as a woman, all of us are uh, essentially dependent on low speed mobility. And on top of that, because of lack of frequency, we end up spending a lot of time in transportation. Um, Women also face a lot of time poverty because of the work that they're supposed to do outside the house, inside the house, and on top of that, the slow modes of mobility, which essentially means that we are left with no time for leisure, no time for relaxation. Women also trip chain for the same purposes. Uh, something as simple as going to work might involve dropping off children in the school and then going to the office. And while coming back from the office, you may, might have to stop at the local farmer's market to pick up vegetables or groceries and then come home. And essentially, our public transport fares make it cheaper to travel longer distances and more expensive to travel shorter distances. But because women do multiple shorter distance trips, women also end up paying more for using the same facilities. On top of all these uh, very strategic problems, there's also societal norms and perceptions of safety. The women need to find a reason to always be outside. There's no concept of loitering that is there in women's lives, especially in India. Safety, like I said, with the 2012 uh, gang rape and murder, that it came to light, but it's always been um, on our minds. Women have to constantly strategize just to get from point A to point B. And we have to keep demonstrating that we have a purpose. We have, we have to keep being the good woman. We have to wear Indian clothes, cover up, you know, be 
show symbols of marital statuses just to be safe in public spaces. Gender is one of the key social demographic variables that can influence travel behavior, but, but it's one of the least understood according to me. And uh, something that Sonal Shah always says is mobility is the fulcrum that connects women to sources of economic empowerment and bad public transportation or walking facilities directly means that women cannot get to work. As simple as that. Yeah, that's, that's very important. And um, when you when you mentioned that point about uh, the perceptions of safety and how women are not allowed to loiter, it uh, reminded me of this wonderful uh, book that uh, Shilpa Padke has written by Loiter uh, about uh, women on the streets of Mumbai. And um, that, this is on a side note, but uh, this is a recommended reading for anyone who is listening to our uh, podcast. Okay, so um, today we have data on Indian women's time use from the National Sample Survey Office, and it has shown that women perform disproportionate amount of unpaid domestic work. It is almost five hours per day compared to 30 to 40 minutes spent by men. In fact, during COVID-19, Ashwini Deshpande, who is a professor of economics at the Ashoka University, found that by December 2020, the gap in unpaid domestic work between men and women had increased compared to last pre-pandemic year. Today, there are also political movements such as the wages for housework that have gained traction and footing in India, and they seek to recognize and attach a monetary value to women's work in the private sphere. Now, even though we have been seeing a consistent decline in the female labor force participation rates in the country since 2005, and the figure today, according to the, the most um, recent periodic labor force survey of 2019-20, is 24.7% in rural India and 18.5% in urban India, how do you think the pandemic of COVID-19 will further normalize, if at all it will, women's role at home, and in a way, therefore, sideline the redesigning of urban transport systems, which women could have otherwise used to advance paid work opportunities? Now, I also want to extend this argument a bit further. How do intersectional identities contest with the seclusion in urban transport systems? What has been the impact of women in the Dalit, Bahujan, and Adivasi community, as you've understood from your own research, Ayla? And in what ways can COVID-19 further this seclusion? Yes, uh, most certainly. That's, that's a, a very, very complicated question. I'm going to try to answer it. Uh, the reality of the situation is that six times more women lost jobs during the pandemic than men. And if the situation continues, women will continue to be rationed out of the job market in favor of men's employment. We know for a fact that even before the pandemic, um, a study by the Asian Development Bank showed that only half of the women were actually allowed to travel outside their village or community by themselves, that is, without being accompanied by men in the family. After COVID-19, this will just become even more uh, exacerbated where women will now require to find quote-unquote justifiable reasons to leave home. And this will inhibit their ability to work, to run businesses, to study, to even avail government health care and aid that is available for women and their economic empowerment. 
at this point i agree that we do need to make a strong argument for domestic work and care work being a shared responsibility between men and women but the reality of the society is that you know it is women who have to take care of the home and if schools don't open if creches don't open i do not see how women can get back to work because the choice between child care and elderly care and work is most of time most of the times not in the hands of women right it's it's the family that decides what to do it's the in-laws that decide um, what to do and apart from care work one thing that is also going to happen once the you know um, country and the society reopens is also that there are going to be lesser and lesser women on the streets because of obviously all these reasons and the streets that are already unsafe are going to become even more unsafe because there are lesser women on the streets we all know that just the presence of more women will give us a sense of safety will give us a sense of belonging in our public spaces and public transportation and this fall in numbers is going to is going to have a huge huge impact in a lot of cities public transport has still yet not been fully restored in terms of frequency and reduced costs etc and this is a very very powerful class and gender bias in terms of planning and policy to say that you know public transport is the last thing that we are going to be focusing on and to your question about bringing in the intersectional lens i think that's one of the most important things that especially in a country like india we need to do in my research what i also found is that domestic workers most of whom are women from dalit bahujan and adivasi communities were the first to lose their jobs when the pandemic started literally the first call all of us made to was to our domestic workers to tell them not to come to the house from the next day right and many many houses asked the are these working women not to come back if they are using public transportation even once the lock to work sorry uh, what we realize is that for these women to get back to work the one thing that we can do is make public transportation safer which means run more buses with less capacity and not what the state is doing of running less buses with less capacity right um and um, i think the situation for disabled women is also an extremely a uh, problematic situation right now where we have heard so many cases of disabled women not being able to go and get the vaccine because they do not have access to private transportation and public transportation is not uh, not safe or not accessible uh, for these women so i think yeah i i definitely think we need to look at more individual um more nuanced understandings of groups and how each group reacts to the pandemic and be able to cater to their needs i completely agree and this leads me to my final question to you what is the way forward in policy planning post covid-19 how can gender planning be made truly inclusive and what about trans persons you know there is stigma associated with their public visibility and in metros and trains there are no compartments for trans persons as there are for the dis- differently abled and women 
how do we incorporate these perspectives too? Of course, in, 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 my, in, in the previous question, you've, you've touched upon um, these facets, but incorporating, incorporating these perspectives in a way that our urban development policies of the post-pandemic India are truly inclusive. How, how, do, we, how do we do this? Yes, I think that's that's going to be the task for all of us who consider ourselves, you know, experts or working in the urban areas even. Um, one of the things that a colleague um, had said recently is that the DNA of the planning organizations has to change. And I cannot agree more. We need women at the table, at the table at which the decisions are being made, whether it's for a simple project of constructing a footpath or the state level, city level projects of making mobility plans. We need women at the table. That's that's literally step one. Um, but I also think more more strategically in the short term, I think governments should innovate and they should work with um, non, non-governmental organizations and civil society groups to set up creches or childcare centers, which will let you know women get back to work. Uh, I think a very, very interesting idea is also to promote cycling through, the, through giving free cycles to school-going girls and to working women, to set up pop-up cycle lanes to make cycling safer, to um, set up public cycle sharing systems. I do understand that cycling is not the most comfortable uh, mobility option for women, especially in Indian cities. But I think it's a good stopgap arrangement until we can get back to safe public transportation systems. Which brings me to the next point is that the trust in public transit has to be brought back. That is the most safest and sustainable mode of transportation we have in cities world over and especially in Indian cities. And the government has to invest in making it safer and in building public trust in the fact that the system is actually safe. And I completely support and will promote the Delhi government's move of making public transportation free for all women. Women pay all kinds of costs to be in the public space. We risk safety, we risk money, we risk time, etc. And if the government can take away at least one of these costs, which is money, I think the government should do it. In the longer term, I think um, all of us should work towards ensuring transit-oriented development to ensure walkable neighborhoods where most facilities are available to people within a 15-minute walkable distance. Cities can promote staggered work timings, especially in central business districts, so that you know not everybody crowds into public transport at the same time. Gender responsive mobility plans have to be made. Uh, we we will keep asking, just like the Maybe Delhi campaign is doing. We will we should keep asking for gender to be an integral part of mobility planning, but also that to, for there to be separate chapters just on gender responsive uh, plans to be made. More than all of this, I think the first step, especially for researchers like me, is to have gender disaggregated data available, uh, which is very, very problematic. Like the data that I've given you through this podcast is from 2011. And we know that urban areas grew so much after the data that we've collected in 2011, right? Um, So we need constantly updated gender disaggregated sources of data. And a very innovative solution uh, suggested by Kalpana Vishwanath of Safety Pin was to create a safety cell at the city level. 
which is led by a very, very senior IAS officer of, or the chief minister themselves, and which will essentially bring in urban transport, urban planning, municipal corporation, gender and women welfare, women and ch children's welfare, all the departments together to sit at the same table and say that gender is, uh, say that urban planning is a gender issue and all of us need to take decisions together. Having said all of this, neutrality does not mean equality when the balance is unequal to start with. Women ourselves are not a homogenous community. And you have very, I think, very importantly brought up the question of trans women. And they have to be a central part of our planning and projects as well. Transportation should be made free for them. Women's reserved seats should be reserved for trans women as well. And we should encourage cycling as a mode of transportation amongst trans women as well to enable, at least in the short term, to enable mobility. Having said this, um, as a cis woman, I do not think I can talk about the lived experiences of genderqueer people. And uh, I'm actually currently working on a project to try and understand their issues better. So probably in the future, I can give you a more concrete answer about this. No, that's that. That was definitely insightful. And um, I, did, I just I just. Uh, remember uh, Dr. Alice Evans uh, from King's College London saying that we need to normalize um, women's visibility in the public and with that we need feminist activism and that is the way forward to smash uh, patriarchy and uh, with that um, Ayla thank you so much for being a part of this podcast episode and um, good luck on your research and I hope to stay in touch. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a wonderful conversation. And if I can throw in a few recommendations, I would suggest that you listen to the Feminist City podcast hosted by Sneha Vishakha. I would also suggest, along with Y Loiter, to look at this book called The Feminist City by Dr. Leslie Kern, which is such a beautiful, radical reimagination of what a city would look like if uh, women were at the center of planning. And um, hopefully we'll have more gender-friendly cities in the future. Yes, yes, we will. I'm sure we will. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ayla. Bye.